0: The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on this Monday installment, and uh, of course, over the weekend, after Pennsylvania was called by the media for Joe Biden... uh, thus allowing them to call the presidency for Joe Biden. Biden and Kamala Harris had a Saturday night uh, celebration in which, uh, according to the media, President-elect Biden had this to say.
6: We're seeing all over this nation, all cities and all parts of the country, indeed across the world, an outpouring of joy, of hope, renewed faith in tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Bring a better day. Yeah, bring a better day.
5: And uh, that uh, quickly uh, transitioned to uh, the pro forma unity call from somebody, you know, who's always been happy to be just a campy senator in the club. So this doesn't mean much, uh, but of course it will be taken as a grand gesture by the D.C. press corps. What uh, Joe Biden had to say to Trump voters. Take a listen.
6: For all those of you who voted for President Trump. I understand the disappointment tonight. I've lost a couple times myself, but now let's give each other a chance. It's time to put away the harsh rhetoric, lower the temperature, see each other again, listen to each other again. And to make progress, we have to stop treating our opponents as our enemies. They are not our enemies. They are Americans. They're Americans.
5: Mm-hmm. And that's a smattering of applause. Here's the deal. Let's start with the olive branch that Joe Biden extended. We'll, I'll get to all the litigation and breaking that down. But the olive branch that Biden extended was sent to the wood chipper by the left before Trump voters even had a chance to react. What do I mean by that? Um, well, how about uh, Ezra Klein over at Vox.com? Uh, I hesitate to draw attention to this stuff, but... Mark Levin is one of the most popular radio hosts in the country. This isn't just about Trump. It's exposure to guys like Levin day after day that readied Republicans for Trump and his autocratic impulses. The rot runs deep as recline on Mark Levin. The rot runs deep. Well, boy, the rot, what do you have? What do you do with rot? You have to root it out, right? Mm-hmm. So this is how we're going to come together. This is how we're going to unify a common purpose or at least uh uh you know better understanding of one another even where there are disagreements or whatever sort of grade school aphorism description you want to provide to this mm-hmm. the rot runs deep and, and sort of the rot is not just Mark Levin although he's target of Ezra klein it's of course conservative talk radio that's part of the rot in addition to the tweeting that was going on this weekend from all quarters whether it's a political staffers for uh, mayor Pete b Buttigieg, uh, the uh, that uh, uh, mannequin from uh, the Mishwaka Men's Department of uh, the, the, uh, you know, the Mishwaka Macy's Men's Department there. Remember him? He was a presidential candidate. Briefly Uh, talking about keeping lists. John Cusack, the actor from my home city of Chicago. I know why Biden is preaching reconciliation, but 30 percent of the country are Nazi, are enemies. Uh, yeah, he speaks broken English, does John Cusack. That's how good the writers are of his mediocre movies. Thirty percent of the country are Nazi. There are enemies. Hmm, tough to reconcile. Uh, how about this as a unity call? No less than Michelle Obama, you know, one of those wonderful, dizzying intellects that uh, uh, the uh, the press corps, the entertainment industry, the elites fawn over and finance right. This is Michelle Obama's unity message. Let's remember that tens of millions of people voted for the status quo, even when it meant supporting lies, hate, chaos and division. We've got a lot of work to do to reach out to these folks in the years ahead and connect with them on what unites us. (laughs) Hey, uh, you liar and hate monger. I want to connect with you on what unites us. Interesting pitch. I don't know how compelling it is. Certainly interesting. Uh, But, you know, this is the Joe Biden uh, doesn't need to mean anything. It's just uh, checking boxes. Right. So uh, Joe Biden, for example, let me just give you another example of the uh, the the, the sophistry of the whole thing with these sort of quotidian cliches. Uh, Joe Biden on um, uh, our great nation.
6: This is great. nation. It's always been a bad bet to bet against America. We're a good people. Mm-hmm.
5: We're a great nation and a good people, which is why uh, this is from the Biden administration agenda from his website. His early executive actions will include rescind the Trump executive order suspending diversity training programs for federal employees and contractors. Uh, diversity training programs. Let me translate that uh, from Orwellian speak to common sense speak for you. Critical race theory indoctrination training. That's what that is. The uh, anti-racism, uh, the, the lethal anti-racism philosophy of the Ibram Kendys and the 1619 projects, Nicole Hannah-Jones, underwritten by the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation. This is the uh, hate, Ameri- hate White America. This is the... Uh, America is inherently racist, wired into our DNA. Nothing you can do about it. spend your life apologizing, critical race theory. So on the one hand, we're a, a great nation with good people. On the other hand, oh, by the way, most of you are racist, and we need to have these uh, radical, critical race theory indoctrination training sessions for federal employees, for federal contractors at K-12 through level, uh, obviously on college campuses. That's sort of what college campuses are for these days, corporate. Uh, boardrooms and retreats, HR departments and everywhere else. Mm -hmm. But we're a great nation and a good people, but I'm going to rescind that order. So I say it's all sophistry, It's just preening. It doesn't mean anything. It's just meant to check a box. It's meant to give the D.C. press corps something to hold on to, to pretend that there's some sort of return to normalcy, whatever that was prior to Trump, Uh, again, now that uh, he has been dispatched, according to them. That's what's actually happening. Uh, So when uh, Joe Biden uh, invokes the Bible, as he did,
6: the Bible tells us to everything. There is a season, a time to build a time to reap and a time to sow and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America.
5: Yeah, Uh, the Bible tells us that uh, we want to reverse Trump's actions on abortion, including reversing the Mexico City policy, restoring funding to Planned Parenthood. Right. There's nothing uh, that the Bible speaks more clearly about than uh, abortion on demand financed by taxpayers. You see what I'm saying? Box checking. You know, the efforts to uh, present unity without really anything to support it. Um, but this is somebody that, you know, it's just happy to be there. Joe Biden is. So he'll say whatever he had to say Today. Yeah, on Saturday, just like he has for fifty years, just to stay in the club—that's all he's ever known. I mean, he, there's no, no, there's nothing distinguishes him. I want to be in the club, so yeah, he's a uh, hail fellow well met uh, when he's not uh, tasked by the prevailing elements of his party to go out and do performance art, whether it be uh, attacking Clarence Thomas at a Supreme Court confirmation hearing or whether it be, uh, you know, essentially serving as the anti-Bernie Sanders candidate and then the anti-President Trump candidate. And now he is this unifying figure when, of course, it's fairly clear that he's a placeholder and he will be captive to whichever direction the party takes him, takes this administration, the party as it exists in Congress and out on the hustings not the administration that is as it exists in the Oval Office. Mm hmm. So uh, the this business
6: We will not lead. We will lead not only by the example of our power, but by the power of our example.
5: Yeah, I mean, just sort of the kind of parallel structure. Oh, boy, isn't that what does that even mean? The example of our power, but the power of our example. I mean, it's just so quotidian. It's just can't with this guy. The words that Joe Biden is reading that were written for him uh, amount to nothing. They run completely contrary to his stated early executive actions piece on his website, much less, of course, the overall program as certified 100 percent read by Bolshevik Bernie. This is all going to be predicated on what kind of uh, balance of power we have with two Senate seats remaining to be decided in Georgia, but this has nothing to do with anything that Joe Biden had to say on Saturday night. Uh, When we come back, I want to tackle the uh, President Trump, uh, the the Trump campaign's litigation that's pending on the merits and why the, uh, the lawsuits that are being pursued are worthy of pursuing, regardless of whether or not Trump is victorious in terms of the electoral outcome. We'll be right back after this.
0: Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the show, and um, I want to uh, transition from the uh, olive branch that Joe Biden extended that got uh, sent to the wood chipper by the left just as soon as he extended it to uh, all the litigation pending. But first, you heard from uh, President Biden on Saturday night. Here was a President Trump's concession speech. Did you hear this? I don't think you did. This is an exclusive on The Dan Prof Show.
6: I'm not f***ing leaving! <laughs> The show goes on. This is my home. They're going to need a fucking wrecking ball to take me out of here.
5: Yeah, the wolf of the White House. Uh, Okay. on a serious note, uh, Newt Gingrich on Fox and Friends over the weekend, we talked about uh, what uh, the former House Speaker had to say on Friday's program on Hannity uh, interview he gave on Thursday evening where he talked about the left engaged in stealing the presidency. He was not mincing words and he wasn't mincing words over the weekend on Fox and Friends either. As to that uh, olive branch you heard from Joe Biden, the uh, pro forma unity call former Speaker Gingrich not any more impressed than I
3: was. Well, look, it's a, it's a nice sentiment. Uh, first you go out and the Democrats steal five or six states. And that's what Republicans believe we're watching. Uh, and We think we have evidence of a lot of it. Uh, then you turn around and you say, let's forget four years of Nancy Pelosi. Let's forget four years of impeachment, harassment, opposition, hostility, hatred. And now that I've won, why don't we get nice together? I think he would have to do a lot to convince Republicans uh, that this is anything except a left wing power grab.
5: Yeah, I think that's pretty much on point, and... um Well, uh, Newt Gingrich went from there to revisit the electoral outcomes in the swing states and suggested no uncertain
3: terms. We believe these people are thieves. We believe the machines are corrupt. The big city machines are corrupt. Uh, We think this is an election. And interestingly, Patrick Basham, who's the most accurate pollster, he's British, wrote in a British paper this morning that this clearly was a stolen election. uh, That it's impossible to imagine that that Biden outran uh, Obama. In some of these states. And he said, well, if you look at places like Cleveland or Chicago or New York, none of this happened. But where it mattered, they stole what they had to steal. And I think that they, they have a big mountain to climb if they think they're going to get most. You know, some Republicans will, will frankly run up and accommodate them and be nice and hope that the media likes them. But the base of the Republican Party uh, is going to really want us to, to remember Nancy Pelosi and to offer them the same level of cooperation. That Pelosi for four years offered the president.
5: Yeah. And um, to that point about uh, what we know to be true. And we'll uh, pick this up, too, after the break with uh, David Rifkin, Justice Department and White House Counsel's Office veteran, particularly about uh, Pennsylvania, but not limited there. But just think about the scope here of the litigation in Pennsylvania and Michigan recount filed in Wisconsin litigation in Maricopa County as well. It runs the gamut. On the one hand, in Pennsylvania, you have the matter, and again, we'll get into depth with David Rifkin on this, of uh, a Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruling that arguably went beyond their authority to extend receipt of ballots for three days past the polls closing on election night, 8 p.m. on Tuesday, November 3rd. And uh, what the remedy would be? The remedy would be, well, those ballots that were received after 8 p.m. on Tuesday night, if... They were done so only because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court exceeded its authority. The United States Supreme Court could take up that case and say, well, those ballots are out. And how would that change the nature of Pennsylvania and the outcome there, given what we know about how Biden closed a 600,000 vote gap over the days subsequent to election night? That's interesting. We also have uh, violations of state election law in our and arguably constitutional law with respect to election officials in particular counties in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin calling voters who had sent to vote a ballot in by mail and saying, well, you you're, you filled out your ballot improperly, so it's going to be spoiled, but you can come in and remedy it. That is explicitly against state law in both Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and there's documentation that it happened. How pervasive was it? That's something that needs to be litigated, I'm as I'm sure the Trump campaign is gathering evidence. In addition to that, this story out of Wisconsin, the uh, Milwaukee City Wire. Milwaukee felons caps, cast absentee ballots in 2020, improperly so. This is four instances, four instances, requested an absentee ballot voted by mail. These four felons are named here and their names are not important. They requested an absentee ballot, cast it in person before Election Day. All four are currently under active community sur- supervision and live in Milwaukee. According to the ACLU, persons with criminal fel- felony convictions in Wisconsin can register and vote unless unless they are currently in jail or prison are on probation, parole or extended supervision for a felony. And these four individuals that were named and identified through the combination of penal records and election records, uh, the, you know, fat ballots cast were on extended supervision for a felony. So they voted illicitly again Four votes. How, but how widespread was it in Milwaukee County, which was one of those curious counties in question, both in terms of turnout, in terms of late night delivery of ballots and in terms of perhaps organized, perhaps organized efforts to defraud. uh, That would include having felons who cannot vote legally voting. This is worthy of investigation in Maricopa County. The story is one in which election officials were encouraging people to green light their improperly filled out ballots, despite notice that they were improperly filled out. Or, for example, they were overvoted or undervoted. So an overvote or an undervote, it could potentially Nullify your vote in a particular race. Say if you voted for two people in a race where you're only allowed to vote for one, for example. And you, if if when the machine catches it, you can not resubmit it. You can take it out of circulation. The election judge can put an X on it. They keep that in a separate pile, separate category, and then you could revote to make sure you fill it out properly. That's what the machine's there for. But uh, the election officials were arguably, according to Maricopa County voters, who provided affidavits to the Trump campaign here, We're saying, no, no, go ahead, just press the green button and let it go through. Well, that could have essentially spoiled their votes, including for president. In um, both Michigan and Pennsylvania, what do we have? We have whistleblowers in post offices suggesting that both in the Traverse City post office as well as the Erie, Pennsylvania post office. We heard this from James O'Keefe's undercover. Well, we heard not. he wasn't undercover. We heard this whistleblowers whose identities were protected, talking to James O'Keefe at Project Veritas last week, saying supervisors told us to backdate ballots received after Election Day as being received on Election Day for the purposes of counting them when they shouldn't have been counted. Another area of inquiry. So many legitimate areas of inquiry. And that doesn't even get to some of the systemic issues, including the election software, which we will get to in the next hour. And uh, what uh, one of Trump's election attorneys, Sidney Powell, had to say over the weekend about the election software vendor and some of the uh, computer glitches in both Michigan and Georgia. And remember here, this is against the backdrop of uh, less than 20,000 votes separating the two in Arizona, uh, 20,000 votes separating the two in in uh, Wisconsin, 40,000 votes separating the two in Pennsylvania, 10,000 votes separating the two in Georgia. This is worthy of pursuit, even if Trump ultimately is not victorious. It's worthy of pursuit because it addresses legitimate questions people have about curious behavior, curious numbers coming out of various places so that you can have confidence in the electoral system in this country. And point of fact, Joe Biden should be arguing for it as aggressively as President Trump is to provide further legitimacy for his victory if he is indeed victorious. But, of course, he's not. And why? This is Dan
7: Proft.
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So the uh, litigation that the Trump campaign is pursuing in courts in Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, recount that they file for in Wisconsin, and uh, let's start in Pennsylvania. Lindsey Graham was on with Maria Bartiromo yesterday, her program after having been briefed by the uh, Trump campaign, and he uh, pointed to this in Pennsylvania.
8: Trump team has canvassed all early voters and absentee mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, uh, and they found over 100 people they think were dead, but 15 people that we've verified to have been dead who voted, but here's the one that gets me. Six people registered after they died and voted. In Pennsylvania, I guess you're never out of it. If Republicans don't challenge and change the U.S. election system, there'll never be another Republican president elected again. President Trump should not concede. Uh, we're down to less than 10,000 votes in Georgia. He's gonna win North Carolina. We've gone from 93,000 votes to less than 20,000 votes in Arizona. Or more, more votes to be counted. There are allegations of system failure, fraud. John James, do not concede. These computers in Michigan do not pass the smell test. Keep fighting for every legal and live vote.
5: Pat Toomey, a senator from Pennsylvania, said similar about Pennsylvania on Friday on the Today Show, but he was more specific about the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and this important ruling of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in advance of the election on uh, November 3rd and after. You know, in
9: Pennsylvania, unfortunately, it's it's been a little bit complicated by a Pennsylvania state Supreme Court that went rogue and decided to violate the U.S. Constitution, ignore Pennsylvania law, and just rewrite the law themselves. They have no authority to do that. And they extended the period of time over which ballots can arrive um, beyond the deadline. That's outrageous, frankly. Now, it's really important that those ballots be segregated because it is against the law. It is unconstitutional. And, you know, one part of this process is litigating these kinds of uh, issues. Now, if the president has evidence of fraud, he should bring it to a court. Let's get it out in the open. Let's litigate that and let's fix it. And by the way, punish anybody who did any wrong. In this case, uh, I think it was the the Pennsylvania Supreme Court that suggested that ballots that arrived too late should nevertheless be counted. No, they shouldn't.
5: And uh, that's an issue that the Supreme Court of the United States declined to take up, Deadlock 4-4, before Amy Coney Barrett was seated. the issue that's raised by Pat Toomey there. For more on the litigation in the various states, we're pleased to be joined by David Rifkin, who uh, served at the Justice Department and the White House Counsel's Office. David Rifkin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
1: Good to be with you.
5: Uh, In your piece uh, you uh, co-authored with your colleague Andrew Grossman in The Wall Street Journal, you talk about some of these issues, uh, such as that were raised in Pennsylvania, including the one you just heard raised by Pat Toomey. Um, that, that is a colorable issue for the Supreme Court to consider, one would suggest. Yes.
1: Um, it, indeed, it is. Uh, the uh, matter is, is now, I believe, would be uh, adjudicated in the merits. Uh, the question, of course, is over what time period. Uh, an expedited consideration would be appropriate. By the way, I have every confidence, and and Senator Dume is correct, I have every confidence in the notion that uh, under the U.S. Constitution, under the Elector's Clause, uh, the very unique federal constitutional authority to set the rules for uh, electing uh, presidential electors is given to state legislatures. It cannot be changed or altered by any other act at the state level, be they the sectors of state, governors, uh, a state courts or federal courts for that matter, so that issue would be one I think the timing is the, the real question is 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 that enough? Uh, given the the, the the way that the current vote tallies look like in Pennsylvania. And by the way, Democrats have tried to change uh, the deadline, not just in Pennsylvania, but in a bunch of other states, including Minnesota, including Wisconsin, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Made a systematic effort for months to change existing state election laws.
5: Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, if uh, you were... Uh, prosecuting that case, arguing that case before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you know what, uh, David, you're right, that is a violation of the Constitution, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court didn't have the authority to do that, what would the remedy be?
1: Well, the remedy is since the votes received after 8 p.m. on November 3rd, and I'm not mistaken, 8 p.m. is the statutorily prescribed uh, deadline. They're segregated. You just take them off the table. You you just remove them from... vice president biden's column what i'm saying is i'm not sure that that is enough to reverse the outcome
5: when we come back with justice department and white house counsel's office veteran david rifkin i want to talk about the pennsylvania supreme court vis-a-vis the united states supreme court and what a decision by the latter on the former's decision to extend the ballot counting time period the ballot acceptance time period in pennsylvania by three days if that were overturned by the high court, the implications on the outcome in Pennsylvania, what would a remedy be? More with a David Rifkin.
10: Role. the best?
0: you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: We're back with former Justice Department official David Rifkin. And uh, before the break, uh, talking about uh, the various uh, legal complaints that the Trump campaign is pursuing in the various states, notably Pennsylvania, and talking about remedies available. Uh, If the complaint is, for example, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court went too far in rewriting state law with respect to the acceptance of ballots after 8 p.m. on Election Day when the polls closed – then what could a remedy be, and what would the implications of such a remedy be on the outcome?
1: It it would be worth fighting. Look, again, I I think that Senator Graham put it with his uh, usual transient clarity. There's a couple of things going on. One is trying to change the outcome of this election, which is important. But even more essential than that is an effort to make sure that we're not going to live in a country where people can willy-nilly change state election laws or people can engage in widespread fraud. So there's a lot more at stake than the outcome of a 2020 presidential election. So in addition to the efforts like challenging the change in the deadline in Pennsylvania, Trump campaign has filed numerous lawsuits challenging various aspects of balloting and uh, really arguing that there's widespread fraud. I would say, frankly, that the number of suspicious developments, if you have nothing to hide, why would you want to have observers from the other political party be kept away. So there are very suspicious developments in Detroit, in Philadelphia, in Fulton County, in Georgia, in Clark County, in, in Nevada. Unfortunately, in order to prevail, suspicion is not enough. So there would have to be some more tangible evidence that may, may well emerge. But here again, it's essential to make sure that these types of practices this type of aberrant behavior. Truly, I mean, we've heard a lot of people talk about democracy in the last few days. Well, elections that are tainted with fraud and the change of rules are not really democratic. So it's essential to push back on, 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 uh, on all of those fronts.
5: On the poll watcher issue, well, uh, the Pennsylvania court did intercede and, and, and mandate that poll watchers be allowed to view the ballot counting. Giuliani says this is after about 450,000 ballots were processed. So, there sort of did seem to be a recognition that something illicit was going on and preventing people from observing the ballot counting. So what would be the remedy for that? Because the Trump campaign wants election authorities that did that, whether in Detroit or Philadelphia, to essentially recount the vote in front of those poll watchers. Is that feasible, do you think?
1: I think that the recounts are necessary. The, the real question is, are they going to have machine recounts or manual recounts? Manual recounts, sort of a Bushwick, we'll right, Florida right. style, are going to be the most accurate. The question is, we're on a very tight deadline. The states have to choose and certify presidential electors by December 8. The Electoral College has to vote on December 14. Today is November 9. The time is very, very tight. But yes, I, I think that the recounts should be launched. Again, look, even if uh, the Trump team is wrong, even if there's not been widespread fraud, there have been enough suspicious developments that given a lot of people pause. For the sake of Biden's legitimacy, if he's indeed going to take office on January 20th, it's essential to dispel those concerns. I would imagine, maybe I'm being too idealistic, I would imagine he would feel the same way. But it, it, it cannot be left unattended and sort of be swept under the rug. That would seriously poison in the most fundamental way, the, uh, the political atmosphere in the next four years.
5: What's your view on why some of the jurisdictions in swing states stopped counting the votes on election day in the, uh, in the late hours, early morning hours?
1: Well, that's also very suspicious because, I mean, uh, look, I'm not an expert in, uh, in electoral chicanery, but one explanation I've heard mentioned is that uh, you want to, if you're going to engage in fraud, if you're going to dump in ballots, for example. Fraudulent ballots. You want to pause and figure out what do you need to make up the margin uh, in order to reverse uh, Trump's victory. There's just no look. The other explanation is just sheer incompetence. Okay, but I'm, I'm not sure why incompetence occurred in more than one state. Uh, at this particular time at night, mm-hmm. so it's it's a real concern.
5: you also point to something in your piece in the journal that we find in Wisconsin as well, which is that in some counties, some election officials. We're violating state election law by calling people who had voted by mail and saying your ballot is spoiled, you improperly filled it out, come right. in and you can correct it and fill out a proper ballot. That's a violation of state election law. Again, we don't know how widespread it is in either state, but this is another material example of either incompetence or fraud.
1: By the way, it doesn't just violate state election law, it also violates federal law and federal constitution because it is the combination of federal statute promulgated by Congress that sets the election date and the constitutional authority spelled out in the constitution that requires the presidential elections be held on the same day. Ask yourself a simple question if you cannot come in and vote de novo, let's say on November 4, how is it that you can come in and correct your ballot? on November 4. It's really tantamount to voting again, so it is unlawful and unconstitutional. The problem is we don't know how widespread this practice has right. been. So difficult to come up with a cure.
5: Right. And so it, that's exactly the remedies. That's why I'm trying to, to press you on remedies. And you, were, you gave uh, helpful examples previously. But when you have the one-off cases Lindsey Graham talking about, you know, they found a half a dozen people who are deceased who uh, registered, who whose votes were counted according to uh, what is provided online in Pennsylvania. In Maricopa County, you have people saying that uh, election judges were advising people who had improperly filled out their ballot to effectively spoil their ballot by by pressing the green button to process it anyway. They're sort of misadvising them. You know, other examples of sort of one-off cases of fraud that don't amount to thousands or tens of thousands of votes, but perhaps are indicative of something afoot. We just don't know. And then it becomes incumbent upon the Trump campaign, right, to put together enough evidence to suggest that uh, a recount is warranted or or some other remedy that would revisit these issues to try and get a gauge on how extensive it was, I suppose.
1: Right. Well, one other remedy that's been discussed in a situation where there, the state legislatures in states like Michigan or, or Wisconsin, if it is convinced that there was widespread fraud... But it's just difficult to prove it in the court of law. The legislature can take – constitutionally speaking – the legislature can take back the choice of electors in its own hands and appoint uh, a slate of electors. Now, that would be enormously controversial decision. I don't have any sense right. as to what was going to happen. Uh, it would be a political price to be paid by the legislature. They would be, shall we say, extremely unwelcome by the other side – and what would happen in that situation, we have contesting slates of electors, one appointed by the secretary of state, let's say, of Wisconsin, based upon their actual balloting, and the one appointed by Wisconsin or Michigan legislature.
5: Uh, David Rifkin served at the Justice Department of the White House Counsel's Office. Check out his a piece in the journal, which I'll tweet out. Another election goes to court. David Rifkin, thanks for joining us.
1: Good to be with you. Well,
0: podcast of the show at com.
5: Welcome back to the show and uh, be remiss, especially as a huge fan uh, to not remark upon the passing of Jeopardy host Alex Trebek after uh, a year long battle with uh, Stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, and the tribute is coming in, uh, me from celebrities, from the players themselves from the champions. Uh, this is uh, recently uh, Albert Thacker who is uh, was a, a champion. This is uh, very recent. Um, he uh, had this to say when uh, Alex asked him if uh, you know anybody was at home rooting for him.
6: The new champion, 20400 for Bert Thacker. Any family members uh, back home uh, cheering you on?
10: You know, here's a true story, man. Uh, I grew up, I learned English because of you. And so my grandfather,
4: who who raised me, I'm going to get tears right now. He, we used, I used to sit on his lap and watch you every day. So it's a pretty special moment for me, man. Thank you very much.
5: That's really cool. And uh, he tweeted out at uh, Alberta Bert Thacker, that uh, he's incredibly grateful to have competed. Thank you, Jeopardy! Uh, Some of the responses. Alex may not realize uh, it, but he's been a second or even uh, surrogate father to so many of us, talking about Trebek, of course. And uh, just other moments, too. This is another contestant. This is uh, November of last year, so this is about six months after Alex Trebek came forward and told the public about his cancer diagnosis this contestant didn't know the final Jeopardy question to the answer provided. So he gave this answer instead.
7: Let's
10: take a look at your response. Did you come up with the right one? No. What is we love you Alex? That's very kind.
6: Thank you. Cost you 1995. You're left with five bucks. Okay.
5: Mm, Alex, obviously getting choked up. It was a nice moment. And uh, I mean, he's such a cultural icon, because of the long running uh, and po- because of the the how the longevity of Jeopardy as well as uh uh its popularity, of course. Thus the longevity, the popularity. I mean, you know, you've remembered the Cliff Claven episode and Cheers where I, I, it, it was so much about Clavin, but uh uh Trebek's you know, cameos in pop culture were great, as well as the parodies. I mean, who can forget Will Ferrell as Alex Trebek on Saturday Night Live and dealing with, uh, you know, Celebrity Jeopardy, which is a great parody of celebrities. And Daryl Hammond as Sean Connery and Norm MacDonald as Burt Reynolds or Turd Ferguson. And the board still belongs. What, Mr. Reynolds?
10: I think uh, I think my buzz is broke. <laughs> no, it's not. You just buzzed in. No, I didn't.
3: I think it's, it's broke.
11: Mr. Reynolds has apparently changed
7: his name to Turd Ferguson. (laughs)
11: That's right. Turd Ferguson. It's a funny name.
7: Burt Reynolds.
11: That's not my name.
3: Okay, Turd Ferguson.
5: And the uh, last episode that uh, Alex Trebek taped of Jeopardy will air on Christmas Day, which will uh, include a farewell message from uh, Trebek. At least it's reported and I'm sure... Uh, many tributes from his many admirers and hopefully Jeopardy champions Je- Jeopardy champions, the Ken Jennings' of the world and so forth. So look forward to that. Rest in peace, Alex This is the Dan Proft Show. The world
0: is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, we're pleased to be joined now by Oren Kass. He's the executive director of American Compass, author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. And uh, he's written a piece, uh, an interesting piece about um, the uh, a multi-ethnic working class conservatism that could be in the offing as a governing coalition. And uh, certainly in part predicated on the sort of support that President Trump received both in 2016 and the 71 million votes that he received uh, thus far in 2020. Uh, Oren Cass, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me.
5: You know, one of the things I I, I enjoyed your piece, but one of the things I want to get to before even that, because I think it it dovetails in with what you're talking about, is this divide that I I started speaking about on Friday, but that we don't talk about enough, I think. This divide not between any particular race, not between the college degreed and the non-college degreed, the divide between the married and the unmarried. Married men uh, to unmarried men was a nine-point spread for Trump. Married women to unmarried women was an 18-point spread for Trump. And um, and what that speaks about sort of stability and here's how you, um, you know, here's the best path forward to living an independent life and and achieving the things you want and, and enjoying that kind of stability. And I know it doesn't work for everybody and there's all those sorts of qualifiers, but but the, the divide between the outlook and the approach to our politics and our culture between the married and the unmarried is very interesting to me. And I think it speaks to a working class conservatism to a significant extent.
4: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I, I think what, what you're pointing to really underscores just something fascinating about politics generally, which is that, you know, the, the real world atop which politics operates changes and And one change is that one one change that has happened in this country is, is we have uh, a lot more folks who who are not getting married, who are not building families, and they are finding themselves with a different set of concerns and interests than the the traditional families that that we we typically think our our politics and policy is focused on. And so that's one of those trends that I think is really contributing to to reshaping our politics and, and creating the room for what, what I think should be the 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 central coalition of 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 families and and workers and, and supporting a country that can support them.
5: And you think about strivers, right, uh, for people, whether they're first or second generation immigrant families coming from uh, Mexico or Central America, or they're um, trying to break the cycle of poverty and particularly historically poor neighborhoods. Um, where the family structure hasn't been intact. I mean, again, one of the things is think about this. You get a high school diploma. um, Don't commit a crime. uh, Get married before you have kids and get any job, any job. Just get into the workforce. And, you know, you're on your way in this country, uh, uh, generally speaking. And you know, there's certainly some uh, some folks that are in the lower rungs socioeconomically that are following that path to the upper rungs, and and maybe that's part of the conversation we need to have to continue to bring in Latino families and Black families uh, to build on the incremental improvements that Trump has made over the past four years.
4: Absolutely, and and I think that example you you used of first second generation immigrants is is an incredibly important one because. The, the, the conservative message is, is a message that, that supports them and, and says America absolutely embraces immigration like that. And, and we need to have an economy and, and a set of public policy that, that helps folks like that uh, achieve the American dream. And what, what you're seeing based on how those voters are shifting uh, you know, it, as the results came in on the election, first we saw the Cuban Americans in, in Miami, but just as much then, you know, Mexican Americans in Texas. Um, what, what you see is these groups are, are maybe not as interested as, as the media assumes in the kind of radical identity politics and everything, everything being about race uh, and, you know, open borders being obviously what, what everybody wants. In fact, the message that, that, that they're hearing from conservatives about um, you know, needing to actually make sure that, that we are building and maintaining an economy that, that can support their interests and needs, uh, that, that's a really appealing one to a lot of people. And, and frankly, I think there's the potential to deliver that message and build those policies uh, even a lot better than, than, than President Trump did. I, I think we're potentially just at, at the very beginning of exploring what that, what that kind of coalition could look like
5: and uh you know and and part of this is you you get to this in your piece at uh, americancompass dot org part of it is uh just sort of being very dismissive i mean even if you have a different approach um this dismissive attitude that sort of the establishment of both parties have had towards uh, people who uh suffer at least short term as a part of as uh related to their particular philosophy of how we should organize society and and our economy, so you had um uh, Joe Biden, you know, famously tell uh, coal miners that uh, you know you need to learn how to code. Rahm Emanuel repeated that actually over the weekend for to people who have lost jobs in in the retail sector. The government should pay them how to learn to become a computer coder, for example. I mean, it's sort of is is sort of wildly presumptuous. Hey, uh Rahm or Joe or some Republicans. Um, I don't want to be a computer coder. Do I get any choice in the matter? It's just very dismissive of the life people are trying to build for themselves and say, well, yes, sorry that happened to you. Here, we'll give you a, a stipend to go learn how to do something we say has value.
11: Well,
10: you
4: know, look. As the economy changes, pe- people do need to develop new skills and, sure. and and potentially change their jobs. But but I think what you're getting at is exactly right, which is that this the, the this sort of progressive vision is essentially just we're gonna everybody just needs to change into what uh, what what we think looks good or makes sense. So, uh, well, coding seems cool. So we think we can make everybody into a coder. You know, there are no opportunities where you live. So. You know, here's a voucher to go to go move to to San Francisco or New York. Uh, n- n- never mind what it's going to cost when you get there, uh, and and so on and so forth. And 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 I think the counterpoint to that has to be, you know, no, there's there's real value actually in in you know making sure that that we have free markets that we're embracing innovation, but but also that those markets are are serving us, not not just that we serve the markets. And if if our markets are not delivering opportunities for people to build good lives with the aptitudes that they have in the places where they live, uh, then, then we have to do something about it. And, and we've been stuck in this paradigm where, you know, the, the left of center just says, well, we'll just a bunch of government programs will take care of everything. And the right of center just says, well, there are no problems here. The, the market is just wonderful. And I think there's a real opportunity for conservatives to say, no, we, we want a successful market economy, but we're, we're going to have to make some changes. But we're going to have to acknowledge there are some problems and we're going to have to make some changes to ensure that that market economy is actually serving the American people well.
5: Well, and and the other thing, too, here is the backdrop is the government is taking away. It's not like uh, Henry Ford came along and and invented the automobile, and uh, that's displacing my horse and buggy business. It's no, the restaurant business is still a viable sector. It's just the government shut my restaurant down, and now it's telling me to go learn to code. Or the the government said, we're not going to use fossil fuels anymore. It's now telling me to learn to go to code. So, you know. It's like to your point, it's not even like I serve the market. It's the government tells me which uh, puzzle piece I am in their grand scheme of putting together the uh, mosaic of America. And, you know, Americans rightly bristle at that.
11: Yeah.
4: And the fossil fuel example is a good one. You know, I I think if 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 the votes had broken a little bit differently, we'd be looking back on on Joe Biden saying making that comment about, you know, phasing out fossil fuels or, or transitioning from them. Uh, in, in Pennsylvania as, as one of the most catastrophic gaffes in, in, in the history of presidential politics. Because, I mean, look, I think if, if you look 50 years down the road, I, I think a lot of renewable sources are, are showing a lot of promise and are gonna make a lot of sense. But let's let's remember that, that the economy that we have, the actual you know industrial economy that we have, the, the sources of energy we use are the livelihood of, of millions of people. And to just say, well, we've got a plan for something better um, <laughs> isn't doesn't, doesn't, again, really respect what people have and, and where they are. And, and so we, we need to take those things into account. And I think a, a huge question for a, a Biden administration is going to be, you know, look, uh, frankly, as a candidate, Joe Biden had some plans that I thought looked very promising. Uh, and then he also had a lot of sort of very silly progressive stuff that I don't think is going to help at all and, and, and may, in fact, make things a lot worse. And, and it's a huge question now, which one is going to be the priority? Are, are we going to get a President Biden who really is concerned about and focused on the working class, or are we going to get one that sort of promotes the you know, that, that essentially tries to run a third Obama term uh, and, 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 again, just focus on the, on the concerns of, of the sort of college-educated, upper-middle-class uh, households?
5: He is Orrin Cass, Executive Director of American Compass, author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. Orrin Cass, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
4: Yeah, thanks for having me. Take care. I've
5: done everything
10: for you. You've done nothing for me. I've done everything for you.
0: you Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
5: back to the Dan Prof show. Joe Biden giving his victory speech uh, after the media declared he was the victor on Saturday night. And uh, he had uh, this to say about uh, America.
6: This is a great nation. It's always been a bad bet to bet against America. We're a good people. It's
5: a great nation. Uh, we're good people. That's why one of his first executive actions, according to the Biden administration agenda, like as posted on his website, is to. Resin Trump's executive order suspending diversity training programs for federal employees and contractors. Diversity training programs read critical race theory indoctrination training in quotation marks. That's what it actually is. So we're a great nation of good people, except according to critical race theory philosophy, we're a irreparably racist nation full of a majority of racists because we're majority white. That's Ibram Kendi. That's Nicole Hannah-Jones. That's, by extension, the New York Times and the Pulitzer Foundation, which advanced the 1619 Project. That's Reparation H, uh, president-elect, uh, according to the media, Joe Biden's running mate there. We're a great nation of good people, except you're also all racist. And we need critical race theory training in, for federal employees, for federal contractors, for Fortune 1000 companies and K-12 school systems, uh, obviously on college campuses and so forth sophistry. So is his, uh, you know, the typical pablum of the left about our our good standing in the community of nations the world over. And that's what Joe Biden referenced when he talks about the soul of America as if the soul of America runs through the state. That's the implication. And everybody is hopeful and joyful now because we're going to be a Democrat socialist country like uh, our friends Macron in France and Merkel in Germany. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine and Shelby Cullin-Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation and author of books including Wiki at War and Private Sector Public Wars. Jim, thanks for joining us. Hey, Good to be with you. So uh, early executive actions in the uh, foreign policy national security arena from uh, Joe Biden, again, according to his agenda, terminate the ban against travel to the U.S. by individuals from Muslim-majority countries, reaffirm the U.S. commitment to uh, NATO, and other security alliances, rejoin the WHO. Uh, um, how do those strike you?
11: Well, the, the bans on countries was primarily put in place because those countries lacked the capacity to really appropriately vet people that were traveling to the United States. And they hadn't agreed to make commitments to actually do that. Iraq, for example, was originally on the list of banned countries. It was removed, not because everybody stopped being Muslim. It was removed because the Iraqi government put the visa policies in place that they're only giving passports to people that we could adequately vet to come to the United States. So uh, just a blanket removal of restrictions without a risk assessment of whether that's going to make it easier for terrorists to travel to the united states or transnational criminals or human traffickers or pedophiles or other people probably not the smartest uh, one to lead with
5: mm-hmm. uh, just on the national security front too uh, because a border security is national security and national emergency declaration that allows border wall funding we're going to uh leave uh whatever's been constructed constructed but we're not going to do anything more
11: well the reality is is If you look at the border and where you really needed reinforced walls on the major smuggling routes, that's done. So it's like after you've won the war, declaring that, okay, we're not going to fight the war anymore. I mean, the border will need to be built, will actually be built by the end of this year. Maverick's already built. You know, we should be really clear. I don't know who's going to be president
5: yet. No, right, right. Yeah, this is is all hypothetical. This is all hypothetical, right, assuming that Biden is officially declared the victor after all of Trump's legal options have been exhausted and so on and so forth. Yes, this is all that, right? And if AOC and the squad hear what you just said about the border wall, then he will have to tear it down if he's the president. Well, I mean... First of all, you tear it down. It'll actually, be expensive. Yeah, uh, know.
11: you know, you would reverse everything we've done the last four years. I mean, the reality is, is we really have. I mean, it's not gone to zero, but we really have done a terrific job the last four years of really breaking up the just the flow of illegal immigration in the United States. I mean, we really have a system in place to do that. Now, there's still going to be some because human traffickers make money off of this and they're going to look for ways to smuggle people across the border. And Now what they do is they, they stuff them in containers and try to run them across. So it wouldn't go to zero, but you'd just be making your, your, the challenge of securing the border way harder. And here's the problem. It doesn't matter what you think about immigration. When you empower illegal immigration, you empower criminal cartels, which then take those billions of dollars and they flog you with fentanyl and every other thing. And, you're going to lose control of your country. That's just the reality of it.
5: So, uh, I mean, do you see much daylight between uh, what a Biden administration might mean in the international arena as compared to what an Obama-Biden administration meant, you know, a decade ago?
11: Well, well, again, not knowing who the president's going to be, you know, we'll talk about the difference between, you know, the Republican and the Democratic Party on, on foreign national security policy. You know, each party has its isolationists and its internationalists and all that stuff. But. The Democratic Party, you, you essentially have a coalition party. You, there, there are two wings to the party. There, there's a, a, a wing of the party that would look kind of just like the Obama administration. And we know that has lots of issues and problems because we watched it unfold over eight years. It, it wasn't good foreign policy, it's just a fact. But then there is a wing, there's a radical wing of the Democratic Party, which has ideas which are completely out of the mainstream. And I don't. I don't know... How in a coalition management like that, where that actually comes down, what we do about the tough issues like China and 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 Russia and and uh, defense spending and a lot of these issues. So I I don't know the answer to how how radical would it just be bad old foreign policy, or would you get truly radical bad old foreign policy from from Democratic leadership?
5: Well, I think that frames it right because I mean Joe Biden really his history has been a guy that's just happy to be part of the club. And so he'll go whichever direction he needs to go to stay in the club, meaning the Senate and and vice president. And and so now you have a very different Democrat Party than you did 12 years ago when Obama and Biden were first elected. And so the question becomes, how beholden will he be to that more radicalized party?
11: We're also in a different world. I mean, it's not the world of four years ago. And and it is more competitive in the sense that you you have a, a China that you still have to deal with. And, and the reality is, is we've done a lot of very good foreign policy in the last four years. And to just throw that out and start over,
5: that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about this because it's, it's being bandied about. Um, and I want to get your take just because you have more uh, experience and understanding uh, with respect to U.S. Army intelligence and this sort of operation. But this idea, uh, this theory that's going around, the suggestion that's going around that there was some kind of uh, sting operation – conducted by uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security, a uh, federalized National Guard troop monitoring the elections around the country to try to root out fraud, that they were uh, at a skiff in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building and that ultimately what uh, this tactical unit found with respect to fraud will come out and it's going to be important. Is, I mean, does that sound plausible to you? I have no idea. Okay, that's. Uh, I just. I want to. I you know. I just want to. We, we did the same thing, and I'm. I'm a skeptic as well. But I just wanted to hear from somebody who is, um, you know, been on the inside of the Pentagon and knows these sorts of things, and whether or not you thought that was credible at all, because these are things being bandied about, and we trying to separate fact from fiction or uh, theory from truth. So. Yeah,
11: I mean, when, we, when you have nothing, it's hard to separate anything out. You know, so, I, I, I don't really have
5: anything. He is Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano, Vice President of the Catherine Shelby Colm Davis Institute for International Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Jim, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for
12: having me. I hate
13: myself
0: Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, Joe Biden in his victory speech on Saturday evening after the media declared him the president of the United States. Had uh, this to say about uh, this inflection point we're at, this moment uh, America finds herself in. You know, this was uh, Joe Biden's uh, best attempt at the soaring rhetoric that uh, punctuated his uh, predecessors. I don't mean Trump, I mean Obama presidency.
6: Well, folks, we stand at an inflection point. We have an opportunity to defeat despair, despair to build a nation of prosperity and purpose. and purpose. We can do it. I know we can. I've long talked about the battle for the soul of America. We must restore the soul of America.
5: Mm-hmm. Restoration of the soul of America through government, through the welfare state. Interesting proposition. But make no mistake, that is the proposition. And uh, then Joe Biden, of course, breaks out the hymnal.
6: And he will raise you up on eagle's wings, bear you on the breath of dawn, and make you to shine like the sun and hold you in the palm of his hand. And now Now together, together, on eagles' wings, we embark on the work that that God and history have called called upon us to to do.
5: Not exactly the rhythm I'm used to at church with respect to that song. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Eddie Scari, commentary writer for The Washington Examiner, author of Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. That continues unabated. Eddie Scari, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, How about uh, Joe Biden, this inflection point we're at, we're going to uh, put an end to despair the way that uh, he's going to find a cure for cancer and so forth?
12: (laughs) I think that's certainly the way the media is going to portray the next at least two years. We'll just go up to the midterms. And yes, all of our wounds have been healed. There's not going to be a single crime across the country that we can trace back to the divisive rhetoric of the president. No, no ills, no problems will ever, ever be traced to the Biden Harris White House. So yes, it's I'm sure he's counting on the media to do what they do best, which is pretend that the entire world is at complete harmony under a Democratic administration.
5: And as uh, Christopher Scalia tweeted, uh, day one on Eagle's wings, day two, go after the nuns. His early executive actions include on health care, Planned Parenthood and contraceptive coverage under the ACA. So on Eagle's wings, we go out and do the Lord's work. And that means taking it to those little sisters of the poor.
12: Yeah, I mean, he's going to try as hard as he can to do a lot of things by executive order, I think, because he knows it's going to be, if not impossible, very, very, very difficult to do to fulfill any of the dreams of that Democrats are hoping for that the left of his party, which is basically the entire party is hoping for. He knows that making all these promises about things he can do. By executive order, I'm sure it'll get bogged down in court, just as Democrats did to Trump and and anything he tried to do. It was just to take it to the courts and slow it down. Hopefully, it dies there. But I'm sure that's what we're looking at. But again. I really do suspect that Democrats are in, and and liberal voters are in for a very rude awakening when they find out that he can't actually do anything. Republicans in the Senate are going to block a lot of what he of what they believe he should be doing.
5: Well, and he's going to get pressure too. I mean, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez was almost inconsolable in this uh, interview she gave to the New York Times, where she talked about uh, how. Um Depressing politics has made her, you know, for real in the first for real in the first six months of my term, I didn't even know if I was going to run for reelection this year because of the stress. It's the stress. It's the violence. I don't know what she's referring to. It's the lack of support from your own party. It's your own party thinking you're the enemy. So she may just uh, take a walk from politics. This just isn't big enough for her. It's too taxing for her. It's too stressful. If not, then is she and the squad? I, I assume we're going to put a lot of pressure perhaps with the aid and comfort of Kamala Harris on Joe Biden to be as extreme as they are.
12: Oh, sure. I mean, I wrote a piece about this um, when it looked like Biden was going to be declared the winner, is that he doesn't have to worry about the Republicans. <laughs> he needs to worry about the AOCs and the Ilan Omars of his party. They're the ones that are going to give him hell when he tries to do anything. And what I suspect from a Biden administration is for some kind of additional relief package over the covid virus. And he would probably be willing to accept any of the very reasonable proposals that Republicans in the Senate have been putting forth for the last two months. And yet you're going to have Ilhan Omar and AOC saying, nope, it's not enough. You can't do that. Nope. Nope. Can't do that. That's all he's going to hear. And then they're going to be pushing him uh, if he gets any, if he gets to nominate any um, Supreme Court uh, for Supreme Court vacancies, any justices, it's going to be a complete moderate, or maybe someone center to the left, and they're going to say that's not enough. Why? What is the point of having a Democrat president if they're going to do things like this to us? Because the world revolves around them, they believe. Um, but I, I'm kind of surprised that she said those things to the New York Times because if there's one thing we we've seen over the last year actually, I guess it's been heightened in the last year, but over the last four years, is that Democrats and liberals do not tire of this fight. They are never tired. They keep going. It's everyone else, that you know, independent voters in particular, who say, you know, I can't take this noise. If you want the presidency, we'll give it to you. Just shut up. <laughs> but to have her say that, that's kind of a surprise.
5: Uh, and it's probably posturing, too. Uh, when we come back with uh, Eddie Scari, I want to talk a little bit about the Republican side and uh, whether or not uh, Ezra Klein is right there over at Vox.com. Trump is attempting a coup in plain sight. More with Eddie Scarry, author of Privileged Victims How America's Culture Fascist Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Stop me, no more.
0: I knew you were waiting. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is, this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the show. And, uh, of course, uh, Senator Mitt Romney from I forget what state. Is it Michigan? Is it Massachusetts? Oh, Utah. It's hard to keep track of his uh, ambulating around the country. Uh, Mitt Romney on Meet the Press over the weekend. No fan of President Trump. You'll recall he voted to impeach. Um, But uh, when it comes to whether or not the president is well within his bounds to pursue his legal rights based on uh, the activities of election officials in the states that were Uh, and will be determinative of the ultimate outcome of this election. Uh, Actually, uh, Mitt Romney may not like President Trump's rhetoric, but he doesn't really have a problem with the actions the campaign is taking. Listen.
2: We're not going to change President Trump or his nature uh, in the uh, waning days of the presidency. Uh, And so uh, I I don't think I'm going to be giving him advice (laughs) as to what to do. Clearly, uh, people in the past, like myself, who've lost elections, Uh, Have uh, have gone out in a way that that said, look, I know the the eyes of the world are on us, Uh, are the eyes of our own people are on the the institutions that we have, the eyes of history are on us, Uh, and in a setting like this, uh, we want to preserve uh, something which is far more important than ourselves, or even our party, and that is preserve the cause of freedom and democracy here and around the world. Uh, But the president is going to do what he has traditionally done, what he's doing now. I don't think that's going to be a surprise for anybody. And by the way, he has every right. To uh, to call for recounts because we're, we're talking about a margin of right. ten thousand votes here or less in some cases, and uh, and so a recount could change the outcome. Uh, he wants to look at irregularities, pursue that in the court. Uh, but if, as expected, those things don't change the outcome, why he will accept the inevitable?
5: Yeah, and actually, Mick Mulvaney, as former chief of staff, writing the Wall Street Journal, will Trump uh, buy a peaceful transition of power if he loses? The, the one-word answer was yes, but that doesn't mean he shouldn't exhaust his uh, legal opportunities, his legal rights uh, with respect to everything that we know and have discussed and will continue to discuss about uh, what transpired and may have transpired in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Georgia, in Arizona, where those uh, races potentially could be very much in doubt or perhaps even wind up in Trump's favor. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Eddie Scari, commentary writer for The Washington Examiner author of Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. And, Eddie, uh, what about that? I mean, you know, Mitt Romney, not exactly uh, in the Trump camp, and um, suggesting that when you see headlines from the left like Ezra Klein, Trump is attempting a coup in plain sight, It's not a coup to uh, pursue a a legal remedy in a court of law. It's quite the opposite.
12: Sure. It reminds me of the repetition over the last I guess, year and a half that, that the president believes he's above the law. No president is above the law. Well, there are certain things that the president is allowed to do that other people aren't allowed to do. The same goes for members of Congress. They can say certain things. Um, on the floor of the House or the Senate and they're completely protected from libel. That's just the way it is. Um, So if he has, if he's within his right and he is to challenge any any um, election results, anything uh, as far as votes go, anything. He can do anything in, in the courts, uh, with the courts. That's the way our system is built. When they say things, the stuff about, you know, he's, he's behaving like a dictator. He, he's usually just using yet one more option that he is legally entitled to. <laughs> um, so it'll be it'll be fun to watch. I mean, I, I'm interested to see what the argument is that the Trump administration is or that the campaign is going to make in the courts. Um, but no, of course, he has absolute his absolute right, just as anybody would, um, to challenge any any contest that they think was unfair, any votes were cast that they think were illegal.
5: And uh, Mitt Romney's measured language on Trump uh, is uh, noteworthy, too. It seems to me maybe that is an indication of, uh, hey, look, uh, if you want a Republican Party that includes uh, 71 million Trump voters, then, then, you know, you better back the president's play here with respect to pursuing legal remedies. You better not just turn around and fold over to the Democrats with, all the stories that have come out about irregularities, really law-breaking in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin in particular, uh, perhaps Georgia as well. Um, a a, a you know, recognition that uh, the Republican Party may want to, some in the Republican Party may want to turn their back on Trump, but they uh, would be wise not to turn their back on Trump voters.
12: Oh, sure. They, 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 the Republican Party would be smart. Uh, all of them, everyone in, in Republican leadership would be smart to understand that Trump changed this party. He changed it in a way that was very significant. And to, and to believe that they're going to go back to being the, the party that with loyalties, their, their only loyalties are to the Chamber of Commerce, um, to mass immigration, um, to quote-unquote free trade, All of that, um, those days are supposed to be long gone. Trump kind of proved that um, with this election, getting more votes than any sitting president ever. um, Still a beloved figure within the Republican Party. What is it, 93% approval rating, I think, on Election Day? Um, People like Mitt Romney, Ben Sasse, um, all of them need to wake up and and understand that this party is – it it can go back to the way it was but just understand then then you can go back to losing just like you did before
5: <laughs> yeah right and uh with respect to the the what transpired too I was just talking about this with uh, my friend up in Toronto Jerry Eagar radio talker up there he asked me the question uh, boy they anticipated riots but so far there's been no violence that that's good news I'm like, well, right, Jerry, there's been no violence because the left's (laughs) candidate appears to be the victor. That's why it was only the threat of violence from from one uh, angle, and it wasn't uh, from the center right.
12: Right it was all democrat city that I live in Washington DC ever it's 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 amazing how the, how wrong the media got it what were they thinking that there was going to be rioting why why are all why are all the the storefronts boarded up my own office building uh, where I work the it's the, the front was completely boarded shut um, well, right, because it's Democrats, it's liberal voters. They're the ones that were going to be taking to the streets if things didn't go their way. But again, um, things are remarkably at peace now.
5: <laughs> well, right. And, and also, too, you think like, oh, well, well, they, they may come out anyway because they'll celebrate for Biden. But the celebration for Biden is pretty muted because it was never about Biden. It was just about Trump hatred. And so, right. you know, so that so I don't there's no outlet. I don't have no energy for Biden. So there's no need for an outlet for that energy.
12: Oh, exactly. I mean, I, I, pretty much every um, every person I've talked to, I have I, I have no choice but to have liberal friends in D.C. <laughs> right. Um, but many of them say, you know, it wasn't about Biden. We don't care about Biden. I mean, it's kind of cool that we got Kamala Harris, but uh, we don't care about Biden. We just so hated President Trump. That was the same thing with the media. Obviously, that no one has any real love for 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 Biden. Um, they're just, and he doesn't care about. Um, Kamala Harris. There's not really much energy or love going on, on around there. This was simply about um, getting rid of the person they hated so much, and that was President Trump.
5: He is Eddie Scari, commentary writer for Washington, examiner, author of Privileged Victims, How America's Culture Fascists Hijacked the Country and Elevated Its Worst People. Eddie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it.
12: Thanks so much. Take care.
0: of the show at com.
5: Welcome back to the show. Well, we talked earlier in the program about the vitriol directed at both Trump and Trump voters despite the pro forma unity call from biden and then there were other reactions upon the occasion of the media making the declaration that joe biden would be america's next president uh, the united america's next president including van jones on cnn who couldn't keep it together what a moment
7: well it's easier to be a parent this morning it's easier it's easier to tell your kids character matters being a good person matters and it's easier for a whole lot of people if you're muslim in this country You you don't have to worry if the president doesn't want you here. If you're an immigrant, you don't have to worry if the president's going to be happier to have babies snatched away or send send dreamers back for no reason.
12: Are you serious with this It's
7: vindication for a lot of people who have really suffered. I can't breathe.
12: You know, that wasn't just
7: George Floyd. That was a lot of people that felt they couldn't breathe. Every day you're waking up and you're getting these tweets and you just don't know, and you're going to the store... And, and people who have been afraid to show their racism are getting nastier and nastier to you. And you're worried about your kids. And, 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 and you spent so much of your life energy just trying to hold it together. And this is a big deal for us just to be able to get some peace and and, and have a chance for, for, for a reset. And, and the character of the country matters. And, 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 and being a good man matters. You know, I just want my sons to, to look at this. You know, it's easy to to, to do it the, the cheap way and, 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 and get away with stuff. But it comes back around. It comes back around. And this is a good day for this country. I, I'm sorry for the people who lost. I, for them, it's not oh, a good day. Oh, clearly. But for a whole lot of people, it's a good day. <laughs> clearly.
5: I'm sorry for the people who lost, who supported all of this, this horrific uh, post-apocalyptic America of uh, hatred and and vitriol unsafety for uh, minorities or Muslims, whatever Van Jones is prattling on about. No, he's really sorry you lost. And very much like the Michelle Unity call. We need to figure out how to get bring people into the fold who are otherwise liars and hate mongers. Interesting call. Van Jones is such a great exemplar of the left's sentimental barbarism. That's just can't. It's pathetic, honestly. Uh, The the idea that the, the quality of your child's upbringing rises or falls with who the president of the United States is. Seriously, if that's the case, then you're failing as a parent. And these apocryphal stories that without specifics about other people felt like they couldn't breathe and so on and so forth. I mean, again, this is the same thing as saying America is systemically bad and it got a little bit better because we're in charge. That's all he's saying. Dispense with all of the waterworks and the histrionics. What a pathetic excuse. I long ago, actually, he was on WLS when I was on WLS in Chicago. We had him on one time and I called Van Jones an Obama suck toy to his face because that's what he is. And he's no better than anybody else on CNN's news desk. What a joke they are. What an embarrassment. These aren't men. These are not the guarantors of civilization. They're the guarantors of the end of Western civilization, if you turn it over to the Van Joneses of the world and the Don Lamones, and the Fredo Cuomos and the Anderson Coopers and the rest of them. It is so contrived, and if it isn't, it's even more embarrassing.
0: This is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Twitter at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. Here's how Newt Gingrich put it over the weekend, first reacting to. Uh Joe Biden's unity plea in his uh, victory speech on Saturday night.
3: Well, look, it's a a nice sentiment. Uh, First, you go out and the Democrats steal five or six states. And that's what Republicans believe we're watching. Uh, We think we have evidence of a lot of it. Uh, Then you turn around and you say, let's forget four years of Nancy Pelosi. Let's forget four years of impeachment, harassment, opposition, hostility, hatred. And now that I've won, why don't we get nice together? I think he would have to do a lot to convince Republicans uh, that this is anything except a left-wing power grab financed by people like George Soros, uh, deeply laid in at the local level. And frankly, I I think that it is a a corrupt, stolen election. Uh, It's very hard for me to understand how we're going to work together uh, without some very, very big steps by Biden. And I have have doubts if the left wing of his party would tolerate him genuinely trying to work with Republicans.
5: I think that's pretty spot on with respect to the assertions of frauding the election. And that's the reason that uh, the media was able to call the election for Joe Biden on Saturday and uh, expedite their desire to put Trump in the rearview mirror as quickly as possible. Gingrich had this to say to the charge of that fraud. What about the evidence? You you have to provide evidence. I haven't seen any evidence. There's no evidence. That was the mantra of the Sunday talkie hosts.
3: What I'm suggesting is you don't see the evidence because the local officials who are Democrats hide the evidence and then turn to you and say, since you have no evidence. So they say, oh, we we let the poll watchers in the building. That's right. But they kept them far enough away they couldn't see anything. And I think I can show you case after case. It happened magically at almost exactly the same moment on election night that a series of Key states quit counting, almost as though they were coordinating what they were doing. And then it happened a few hours later, about four in the morning, that they had huge data dumps of, of Biden votes.
5: And something that is uh, worth noting, that is
3: remarkable, regardless of
5: what the ultimate outcome in this is, captured by Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor of Spiked Online, in his piece of the New York Post over the weekend, where all the talk, of course, is about uh, Joe Biden piling up the most votes for a presidential ticket in American history. Well, in second place is one Donald Trump, also ahead of Barack Obama's 2008 total. And what does that say? That says 70 million Americans are beyond the reach of the elites in charge of academia and Wall Street, the D.C. Press Corps and Fortune 500 C-suites, K-12 through systems governed by public sector unions. 70 million Americans are hip to the scam. And that's an encouraging note, even if this doesn't work out Trump's way. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Paul Kanger. He's a professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, contributor to The American Spectator and author of The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Professor Kanger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
10: Yeah, thanks, Dan.
5: So what's your bird's eye view from Grove City, PA?
10: Yeah, it's pretty depressing, frankly. I, I mean, I, you could have added a Newt Gingrich's list there of uh, our great unifier, Joe Biden. Let's not forget how he accused Donald Trump of killing 200,000 people through COVID-19. And, you know, he and Kamala many times during the debates, right? There are 200,000 dead people, thanks to Donald Trump. And in fact, I'm going to hunt down those quotes. And then here we are today, and I just went to uh, the Drudge Report to get sick. And I see <laughs> that, that Drudge has COVID miracles. That's the lead at Drudge. Jab, 90% protection, stock sore. And I was waiting for this news on the COVID vaccine to see if it would hit before the election. It didn't. It came one week after. It reminds me of 1992 when the uh, third quarter growth numbers for George H.W. Bush came in one week after he, was, after he lost to Bill Clinton. And Tom Brokaw got in the air with a kind of a smirk on his face said, and Now the economy is fully recovered, just like President George Bush said that it would be. And, you know, at that point, it was a little too late. Of course, if Pfizer had reported this uh, last Monday, the media wouldn't have reported it. So, it. so it wouldn't have mattered anyway. Trump wouldn't have gotten a bump from it. I'll tell you some, something else that I'm looking at, and I wrote on this for American Spectator last week on what's happening here in Pennsylvania. There are 100,000 provisional ballots that are still out in Pennsylvania. And I've got the tally here right in front of me, and it's trending about what I thought it would be, 60% for Donald Trump. And if this holds up, it's going to be – those provisional ballots will be be about 60,000 to 40,000 for Donald Trump. So he'll gain a 20,000-vote advantage on that, and that will cut Biden's lead in Pennsylvania to under 20,000 overall. So there will be a difference between him and Trump of 0.5 percent, and that will trigger an automatic recount in the state of Pennsylvania. And we still don't have overseas ballots and other ballots that are in yet. So Pennsylvania is not over yet. And you know, Donald Trump is right to continue to question this. I mean, the, the media called Arizona too early, especially Fox, and they called Pennsylvania too early as well.
5: But I, I just want to be clear it's one thing I, and, and I'm, I'm asking, I'm not saying the, the uh, as as those votes uh, were being counted, that that lead diminished, as you're describing precisely correct. But were those all those ballots received after November 3rd and counted or, or could they have been received before eight o'clock on November third, and they just were counted after that.
10: So, I, so that I don't know for sure. That's something that would absolutely have to be determined. And that, right. that was Alito's right, Alito's statement about quote unquote segregating those votes. Right. That came in after eight o'clock on November third. I I had a member of my family who did not get the absentee ballot until I think it was I think it was that day or maybe even the day after. And my wife finally just said, hey, go ahead and fill it out. I know it's Thursday. (laughs) Go ahead and fill it out and send it in because who knows, right? Who who knows if they're going to count these or not? So, and that ballot, that absentee should have arrived about four weeks ago. So it's hard to say, but Alito's right on segregating those ballots. You might as well segregate them if they came in after the 8th, after 8 p.m. on November 3rd. And also, too, I don't know, Dan, if you're paying attention to this, a piece in the Washington Examiner, among others, about a postal worker in Erie. Yeah, right.
5: James who,
10: yeah. Yeah, who a sworn affidavit. Right. I'm looking at the numbers for Pennsylvania, when I saw the statewide map go up on, I think it was CNN on Thursday or Friday, and I saw the handful of blue counties in Pennsylvania, and one of them was was in the upper north corner, Erie. And I looked at that and I said, "Whoa! Erie voted for Biden? No way! There's no way Erie voted for Biden. I, I, I mean, Erie voted for Trump, for Trump o- over Hillary, and Trump got uh, way outperformed in Erie what what he did in 2016. There's no way Joe Biden won Erie. There's there's just no way, and, and I'm convinced there's no way." He won Pennsylvania. Um, Donald Trump. Right now, we're looking at about 400,000 more votes he got in Pennsylvania in 2020 that he he did in 2016.
5: Right, and you're talking about turnout in Pennsylvania. Then that would have been north of 70 percent overall.
10: Yeah, yeah. So Trump got 2.9 million votes in Pennsylvania in 2016, and right now he's over 3.3 million. So you know four hundred thousand votes might not sound might not sound like a lot to people i 'm talking to in Chicago, right, but you know four hundred thousand do the math four hundred thousand over two point nine million I mean that 's a big jump hmm. and, and and frankly it 's what we expected we, and we thought well well biden's not going to get there's no enthusiasm in Pennsylvania for biden none none whatsoever and Donald Trump even improved with a minority vote this is pretty remarkable. Uh, Donald Trump actually got almost 20% of the vote in Philadelphia. Now, people are thinking, wow, that sucks, right? No, uh, I, I, I would have been surprised if he got 10. He actually got 20% of the vote in Philadelphia. Allegheny County, which is Pittsburgh's county, he got 40% of the vote, 40. It, so, and, and the mail-in ballots, we did an estimate last week, so did the Trump campaign, that, that Biden would have needed to get about 80% of the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania to, to catch Trump. And, and I think the Trump campaign estimated 78%. I estimated 80%. Well, he, he must have gotten 83 or 85 to, to to pass Trump. And I don't know where he's getting those. He didn't even get 80% in Philadelphia. A, a lot of those counties were, were Republican counties, including mine, Mercer, where Trump got 63%, 65% of the vote. One of them is Beaver, uh, a fracking country. That's the home, by the way, of Mike Ditka. 58% went went for Trump. Um, York County, which is a high population, 62% went for Trump. So I I don't know where Biden or how how Biden could have gotten 80%. Of, the, of those mail-in ballots. This is all very, very it's,
5: hard to believe. Very curious <laughs> numbers, yeah. We're you know, seeing that in, in these swing states, it's, it's, uh, whether it's turnout or whether it's just a performance in areas where you're not expected to do as well, like you mentioned in Philadelphia, which is like Chicago, getting 20 percent is a good number for a Republican these days, and yet you still lose. It is very curious. Paul Kanger is professor of political science at Grove City College in Grove City, PA, Contributor to the American Spectator, author of The Devil and Karl Marx, Communism's Long March of Death, Deception, and Infiltration. Professor Kanger, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it.
10: All right, thanks. Take
11: care.
0: Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the Dan Prof. Show. I want to turn our attention away from uh, the pending presidential election and the litigation that we've spoken a lot about on the program today, but uh, turn ourselves to uh, some uh, re-examination again of the below the fold, below the presidential election results we talked about a bit last week in terms of ballot initiatives and Uh, In addition to uh, local races, upsets, Donna Shalala being taken out in Miami and so on and so forth. But particularly some of the ballot initiatives that change the way that uh, life works in particular states. Think about uh, Arizona passing almost a doubling of the state's income tax on people with incomes over two hundred fifty thousand dollars while in my home state of Illinois, rejecting a graduating of the state income tax. So uh, as we try to emphasize here, I know the focus is always on president and the focus is always on federal, but it is your state and local government that has a more daily material impact on your life. So these other issues should not go uh, unaddressed, and they won't on this show. And to help us do that, we're pleased to be joined again by John Miltimore, who's the managing editor of FEE.org, the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, F-E-E.org. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it.
14: Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me on.
5: Well, uh, speaking of impact at the local level, particularly on, say, local businesses and local employment, uh, you uh, picked up a good one, and that is in the state of Maine, Stephen Kingland, where Susan Collins, near uh, one re-election going away, actually, something else occurred, which is uh, – uh, the state of Maine went uh, well beyond what uh, even big city uh, America has done with the fight for 15, the $15 minimum wage, $18 minimum wage in Maine.
14: Yeah, um, you know, the first thing they did was increase the minimum wage from $12 to $15 an hour. Um, but there was a provision in in that ballot initiative that, that said during times of uh, pandemic, it wasn't specific to pandemic, but during civil emergencies, um, workers will automatically get time and a half. So that means by by next month, that twelve dollars minimum wage, which will be increasing, you know, soon, um, is going to immediately go to eighteen dollars an hour. And a lot of local businesses are pretty concerned about that. They've already been hit hard by the pandemic, and they're they're um, many of them are in the red, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get back into the black with such an increase on in their labor costs.
5: Right. And, and so this is something that just sort of plays itself out again and again. It'd be interesting to see um, uh, if what happens there, uh, uh, ha- what happened in Seattle happened there, which is actually Seattle restaurant workers revolting against an increase in the minimum wage because they knew it would mean more unemployment. And oh, by the way, we make more uh, at the lower minimum wage based on our tips. So actually the frontline workers who they is supposed to help, they actually know better than the politicians.
14: No, that's exactly right. We know, you know, businesses are going to have to adjust, and they're going to reduce compensation in other ways. They're going to, you know, reduce worker hours. They're going to, you know, lay some workers off. Um, so, you know, workers should be sweating this as well as businesses.
5: Uh, one of the other things, again, going below the fall, we talked about it a bit last week, but uh, you uh, refer to it as a green wave in your piece uh, at fee.org. But um, drug legalization beyond marijuana, even, I mean, in the state of Oregon, what uh, would include small amounts of heroin, uh, that uh, one everywhere it was on the ballot, uh, just about at least at the state level.
14: Yeah, five different states, you know, ranging from, you know, Deep Red, uh, South Dakota blue new jersey and, and and arizona was another one um they all passed by pretty overwhelming margins and uh the stock market reflected that if you watch it the stock uh the the prices of of uh, cannabis stocks are doing pretty well this week
5: and so that uh probably puts more pressure on the federal government to do something to um normalize this business uh for the purposes of access to banking which is still an issue
14: yeah, that, you know, we've actually did some pieces on that last year that some of these businesses are, that they still can't get legal, you know, banking like another business because of the of their product. And, um, you know, so far, you, the, the Attorney General has kind of took taken a, a Tenth Amendment approach to this issue and says, if states are going to legalize it, we don't want to interfere too much. But there there is still, you know, other problems out there that need to be addressed at the federal level, like
5: banking. And so this is something that... Um you know maybe ultimately because of the popularity at the state level may force the hand in a bipartisan way at the federal level regardless of who's president and the distribution of power in congress
14: i think you're right i think we're seeing you know year after year um states are moving in one direction on this and i think there this is one of those places you know uh, republicans and democrats disagree on a lot but this is one place where americans seem to speak with kind of a uniform voice that decriminalization and legalization of cannabis um, it seems to be something that we need to get done.
5: Uh, do you, do you uh, worry, though? I mean, maybe you don't worry, depending on your position. But I mean, I you look at this and say, well, some people say, well, marijuana is one thing. But when you have states now using that entree to advance things like uh, um, decriminalization of heroin, as Oregon did, that's just something else.
14: Yeah, we actually have a piece coming out on that today, and we're going to look at that issue, at, you know, fc.org. And, you know, my position on this has always been, you know, I, I support legalization. I, I, I think, though, doing it incrementally makes sense, um, starting with things like, like, like pot. Um, you know, we, we don't know some of the things that would happen if, if overnight, you know, heroin, heroin was 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 legalized. So I think the overall trend is good. I think, you know, we, we, we might want to be careful and not do everything all at once, because there might be social consequences that, that we're we're not
5: sure of. yet. Also, too, I mean, isn't this one of these cases where its government allied against the interests of the citizen in this in, in this way? I mean, uh, like red light cameras, uh, like uh, syntaxes on cigarettes. Uh, You know, don't do this. I don't want you to do this. But actually, I need you to do this because I've already budgeted for and spent the money we expect to realize from you doing this.
14: Yeah, there certainly could be something in there. I mean, that's, you know, something people have been talking about for a couple of years now. Legalization. One of the reasons it might be happening is because governments are, you know, taxing cannabis heavily. Um, and that's one of the things, you know, like I mentioned, the, the cannabis stocks are doing real good right now. I can tell you that the fear with those companies is that government's going to kind of keep taking a larger and larger share, which might make it a little bit harder to, you know, to deprofit profit like you, you would say, even in alcohol. Right. Because the government does want their pound of flesh.
5: Please see the casino industry. Exactly. Um, uh, well, last uh, a topic I wanted to get to with you Um <laughs> The uh, whole, uh, you know, putting your faith in in government um, in these times, especially your faith in government to do big things like uh, stop a pandemic or run our health care and health insurance industries for us. Uh, You uh, address that in the context of this controversy that persists uh, a week after the election with ballot counting.
14: Yeah, I mean, here we are, like tomorrow will be a week after the election and we still have You know, close to a dozen House seats that are undecided. We have Senate seats that are undecided. A lot of states aren't done counting yet. Um, And it's kind of, you know, disgraceful when you look at it. And I I saw something Glenn Glenn Greenwald, the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, wrote on this. And he he pointed out a lot of small countries with far fewer resources than we have managed to get, you know, their voting done in a timely manner. And that's something we're seeing a little bit less and less. And I think um, it is because it's becoming even more bureaucratic. And I think that is a learning opportunity for us. Like we, you know, government's having trouble managing something as simple as, you know, collecting ballots and counting them. And we want them to manage pandemics and healthcare and things like that. And uh, I think it's a good example of saying, maybe we need to, to look at, at how uh, effective government is at, at managing these, these processes. If they can't do something as simple as collecting and counting ballots in a timely manner, we should be, you know, it should give us some pause on these things that are far more complex.
5: He is John Miltimore, the Managing Editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. Fee, dot org is where you go to get uh, his musings and those of many others. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate
14: it. Hey, thanks a lot for having me on, Dan. Take Take care. Take care.
0: exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the program. Switching to COVID, since uh, president-elect, according to the D.C. press corps, Joe Biden had a COVID briefing today and then did a short press avail where he just spent all the time talking about masks and how masks will will save lives. Uh, Task force includes uh, uh, Zeke Emanuel, tiny dancer's brother, Dr. Zeke. We've had him on the program. Uh, This is somebody who, by the way, wanted America to lock down into 2021. This past summer suggested the lockdown go to maybe through 2021. Another year, year and a half is what I recall Zeke Emanuel saying. He's part of uh, Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. This should be fun. And otherwise, masks are panacea when nobody believes that tens of thousands of lives will be saved. That's what Joe Biden said. Nobody believes that. No serious person. And there's no evidence to support it. But this is the sophistry of the left. In point of fact, what are we experiencing? We're experiencing. No, well, just talk about my home city of Chicago. Uh, the mask wearing has uh, basically been more or less consistent and from survey research on the topic, you pretty much see that since mask mandates went into effect in uh, states around the country. And yet, where are we at? Well, in Illinois, we're the only state in the nation that doesn't allow indoor dining in restaurants, despite the mask wearing. So again, if it's a panacea, which is what it's being advertised as when you say the most important thing we can do, uh, perhaps more important than a vaccine, absurd, absurd. And uh, Christy Noam was having none of it with George Stephanopoulos over the weekend, the governor of South Dakota.
10: This morning, COVID is rising in your state as well. Cases are up, hospitalizations are up, deaths are up. Are you prepared to work with President-elect Biden to get it under control?
13: Well it is a regional increase that we're seeing. We are testing more and frankly, George, I'm not going to take advice from Governor Cuomo. He has the second worst death rate per 100,000 people in this nation. He's at 173 deaths per 100,000 per capita. South Dakota's at 54. Uh, I appreciated that President Trump gave us the flexibility to do the right thing in our state and we will continue to do that. He let me do my job. Uh, But the other thing that I think is going on here, George, is that this is all premature. This is a premature conversation because we have not finished counting votes. There are states that have not been.
5: Yeah. And so, you know, she went into the vote thing. But um, the bottom line is, uh, you know, will you work with to get it under control? Again, this starts from the premise that uh, uh, Joe Biden is not going to lock down the country. He's going to lock down the virus. What does that mean? Everybody wears a mask. The the good and the real good news today is substantive. It's not uh, Biden's. Uh, silliness. It's uh, the news that uh, Pfizer and biotech have a vaccine that uh, is reportedly 90 percent effective and may be moving to uh, FDA emergency youth authorization application in short order. And this, of course, is why the market popped today. Um, but there's something else, too, just in terms of tradeoffs worth noting. Uh, graduating in a recession can be rough. Wages start lower, advance more slowly. It's hard to get hired at a top firm, which means it takes longer to get on a rapid ascent career path. A lot of research has looked at people who graduate into a recession or are looking to enter the labor market in a recession. The failure to take off leads to choices which often make things worse. Initial labor market conditions persistently increase excessive alcohol consumption, according to one study from 2015. Higher obesity and more smoking and drinking in middle age, according to another 2015 study. College graduates entering the 1980s recession experienced higher incidence of heart attacks in the middle age, that from a 2013 study. Following all labor market entrants from these cohorts, other research in 2020 found that starting in their late 30s, unlucky entrants began experiencing a gap in mortality compared to their luckier peers that keep increasing in their 40s, driven by higher rates of heart disease, liver disease, lung disease and uh, lung cancer and drug overdoses. Marital patterns of unlucky cohorts are affected from the time they enter the labor market into middle age, when these cohorts have fewer children, are more likely to have experienced a divorce, are more likely to live on their own. Initial labor market conditions also have been found to have effects on attitudes towards economic success and the role of government and to lead to increasing, increasingly lowering individual self-esteem. This is um, going back to I mean, we've known this for a while, known this for a while. Uh, Andrew Oswald, an economist at the University of Warwick and a pioneer in the field of happiness study, says no other circumstances produces a larger decline in mental health and well-being than being involuntary out of work for six months or more. You mean like if you're locked down for six months or more? It's the worst thing that can happen, he says, equivalent to the death of a spouse and a kind of bereavement in its own right. Only a small fraction of the decline can be tied directly to losing a paycheck, says Oswald. Most of it appears as the result of a tarnished identity and a loss of self-worth, the psychological scars that remain even after work is found again. And because the happiness of husbands and the happiness of wives are usually closely related, the misery spreads throughout the home. That's from a uh, 2019, uh, excuse me, a 2010 study. So think about that in terms of the tradeoffs that uh, Joe Biden and uh, Dr. Zeke and to be sure his uh, harumph squad on that COVID task force don't want to make. Just like the lockdown and bus politicians in New York, in Illinois, in California don't want to make. They don't want to contemplate these trade-offs. We're going to ignore that research. And then we're going to make up research to support masks as a panacea. That's the new normal. Wear a mask and save a life. Oh, okay.
0: The more you listen, the more you'll know. This, is, this, this is the Dan Proft Show.
5: Welcome back to the show. You heard at the top of the hour in our conversation with Paul Kanger, professor of Sia at Grove City College, that um, if uh, 100,000 provisional ballots are counted, he uh, expects they go about 60-40 for Trump, which cuts the lead in Pennsylvania to 20,000 votes for that to happen. And as we discussed earlier in the show, think about the pending litigation that would seek to prevent ballots received after November 3rd from being counted If the Supreme Court rules what the Pennsylvania state Supreme Court did unconstitutional and how that could change the outcome of Pennsylvania. Uh, In addition to that, there are other questions afoot. Um, And, uh, for example, let's visit Wisconsin. Right now, it's uh, 20,000 votes. Lots of stories out there that uh, there are way more Wisconsin votes than registered votes. We've talked about that in certain wards in Milwaukee, 200% of turnout. So, uh, yes, we understand their same-day registration and thus voting in Wisconsin, but really, you had that much same-day registration in certain wards in the city of Milwaukee, and then that sort of turnout. 83% turnout was tracking for Milwaukee County. Remarkable. Uh, We also have... uh, this uh, from uh, justthenews.com, our friend John Solomon, uh, his news outlet. Uh, the uh, Constitution only allows for state legislators to change the way elections are conducted. This goes back to the issue that we've talked about, just mentioned with Pennsylvania. Memos show Wisconsin election supervisors made three substantial changes in 2020 to that impact potentially tens of thousands of ballots, tens of thousands. Permitted local county elections to cure spoil ballots by filling in missing addresses for witnesses, even though state law invalidates any ballot without a witness address. Again, mentioned earlier in the show, this is curing a spoil ballot, both in, with some Wisconsin officials, some Pennsylvania officials against the law in both cases. Exempted as many as 200,000 citizens from voter I.D. rules by allowing them to claim that the COVID-19 pandemic caused them to be indefinitely confined. Failed to purge 130,000 names from outdated voter rolls as required by law. And this was actually a case adjudicated back in February of this year. Uh, Derek Muller, professor of law at the Iowa School of Law, and expert in legal election matters. It's a complication thing about elections like this. I've seen it in a lot of jurisdictions, what might sort of be a technical violation of the statute. In this case, uh, encouragement to county clerks about how to use their judgment on whether or not to cure a ballot. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, you also have the issue of uh, felons, convicted felons who are still under extended supervision from their felony conviction who voted. There's four cases reported in Milwaukee County. And one wonders how extensive that is. You know, there was a time when uh, The New York Times actually was concerned about this. Oh, it was in advance of Obama's reelection in 2012. Institutional memory on The Dan Prof Show. October 7th, 2012, the New York Times reporting. Error and fraud at issue as absentee voting rises. Uh New York Times reporting. Yet votes cast by mail are less likely to be counted, more likely to be compromised, more likely to be contested than those cast in a voting booth, statistics show. Election officials reject almost 2% of ballots cast by mail, double the rate for in-person voting. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It would be funny if, uh, you know, The America's future wasn't at stake. Uh, Fraud easier via mail reports. The New York Times, you don't say sounds like something President Trump was saying and uh, others through the run up of this push for a vote by mail election. Uh, New York Times reporting election administrators have a shorthand name for a central weakness of voting by mail. They call it granny farming. The problem, said Murray Greenberg, a former county attorney in Miami, is really with the collection of absentee absentee ballots at the senior citizen centers. In Florida, people affiliated with political campaigns help people vote absentee, in quotation marks, as he pointed out. Meaning voters in nursing homes can be subjected to subtle pressure, outright intimidation or fraud, the secrecy of their voting easily compromised, and their ballots can be intercepted both coming and going. Oh, you mean like ballot harvesting, which now The New York Times and the left endorses? The problem is not limited to the elderly, of course. Absentee ballots also make it much easier to buy and sell votes. In recent years, courts have invalidated mayoral elections in Illinois and Indiana because of fraud, fraudulent absentee ballots. Oh, this was back in 2012 when The New York Times recognized voter fraud. It was actually a thing. It actually existed. Sidney Powell recognizes it's a thing. and It exists. She was on the talk shows this weekend, starting with Lou Dobbs on Friday and then moving over to Marie Bartiroma on Sunday. And this was specifically at least in part, with respect to the case of Dominion voting systems and um, the computer glitches, in quotation marks, both in one Michigan county, where it was initially reported, Antrim County, where it was initially reported that Biden won and, in point of fact, Trump won about a 5,500, 6,000 vote swing. And then also in Georgia, the same thing. Uh, Sidney Powell explaining to Lou Dobbs.
13: Any number of things they need to investigate, including the likelihood that 3% of the vote total was changed in the pre-election voting ballots that were collected digitally, by using the hammer program and a software program called scorecard. That would have amounted to a massive change in the vote that would have gone across the country and explains a lot of what we're seeing. In addition, they ran an algorithm to calculate votes they might need to come up with for Mr. Biden in specific areas. I think that explains what happened in Michigan, where the computer glitch resulted in a change of votes of uh, about 5,500 in favor of President Trump. in one of 47 districts all those districts need to be checked for that same quote software glitch end quote that would change the result in michigan dramatically um the same thing is happening in other states we've had hundreds of thousands of ballots mysteriously appear for uh, solely for mr biden which is statistically impossible as a matter of mathematics It can all be documented. We are putting it into materials that we will file in federal court, and we need to seek relief in multiple states to enjoin the certification of any election results.
5: And the key piece of it is uh, we're going to put this in the form of a complaint and pursue a remedy in court. Right. And, you know, maybe they won't provide the requisite evidence for said remedy. That maybe Sidney Powell won't be able to prove up that claim. Uh, But uh, that's all that's being done is pursuing complaints that have a legitimate basis per something that did occur, uh, legitimate questions being raised in courts of law and uh, Michigan uh, included, along with Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona. And those cases should be adjudicated with all due speed. There's no reason why they can't be. Uh, when we come back, uh, a little bit more comment on Georgia and Michigan to close out the show. We'll be right back.
11: It's the final countdown.
14: The final countdown.
0: Listen to the podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
5: Welcome back to the show. We were talking about what uh, Trump legal team member Sidney Powell who's also the attorney for Michael Flynn, as you know, was saying over the weekend, uh, you heard her on Lou Dobbs talking about these uh, computer glitches, the uh, software Dominion voting systems. And uh, this was reported in Michigan, the county in question, as a clerical error. It was not a system malfunction that would have spread across the state but just a clerical error in terms of uploading an update to the software. Maybe. Well, maybe it was. That's what's reported. Maybe. Uh, I'd check it out, though. Wouldn't you? If it was uh, your candidate online line or you were the candidate, wouldn't you want to check that out? Sort of an odd occurrence. Uh, Powell uh, suggesting on Maria Bartiroma yesterday that uh, some of what we saw, including the seeming you know, almost synchronization of ballot dumps in places like uh, Milwaukee County and Philadelphia on, in the early morning hours Wednesday it was all part of a the plan.
13: They had this all planned, Maria. They had the algorithms. They had the paper ballots waiting to be inserted if and when needed. And notably, President Trump's vote in the blue states went up enormously. That's when they had to stop the vote count and go in and replace votes for Biden and take away Trump votes.
5: And we talked about that with David Rifkin earlier in the program about stopping the vote, stopping the vote counting. Why would you do that? Yeah. Another legitimate question that uh, is a fair area of inquiry for a court of law. Powell also uh, making the point uh, about uh, the uh, parties involved with uh, Dominion voting systems make it really interesting, actually Bartaroma set her up.
13: I also see reports that Nancy Pelosi's longtime chief of staff is a key executive at that company, Richard Blum, Senator Feinstein's husband, significant shareholder of the company. What can you tell us about the interest on the other side of this Dominion software? Well, obviously, they have invested in it for their own reasons and are using it to commit this fraud to steal votes. I think they've even stolen them from other Democrats in their own party who should be outraged about this also. Bernie wow. Sanders might very well have been the Democratic candidate, but they've stolen against whoever they wanted to steal it from.
5: Well, that may or may not be obvious. Um, this is, again, for, to, bear, to, to play out in a court of law, but it is worth noting that, um, say, in Michigan— Michigan State legislator in a Saturday hearing of the House and Senate Oversight Committees issued a subpoena to election officials seeking documents pertaining to the state's election process. Um, this is uh, as a result of this report about Antrim County and the quote unquote software glitch. And and again, the same thing happened in Georgia. Technology glitch that halted voting in two Georgia counties Tuesday morning caused by a vendor uploading an update to their election machines the night before. Voters unable to cast machine ballots for a couple hours in Morgan and Spalding counties after the electronic devices crashed. The counties using voting machines made by Dominion Voting Systems uh, and, uh, again, attributing this to essentially operator error. Well, we'll see. We'll see. And we'll uh, report on this tomorrow and in the coming days as these matters wind their way through the courts. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof. Show. Please do so again tomorrow.
11: This is the Dan Prof.
5: Show.